The Third Circuit upholds the prohibition on nonviolent felons owning guns. Plus, a conversation with Steve Waldman of the New York State Jewish Gun Club on his group's suit against the state's synagogue gun ban. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now if you want to keep up to date with the latest news on guns in america uh, you can also buy a membership if you want to support the work that we do and get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you will not find anywhere else you'll also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show uh, and we're actually going to have a member segment coming up in the next episode or two one of my favorite segments so I'm looking forward to that. But this week, we are discussing New York's latest gun carry law and one of the major challenges uh, to it, which is why we have Zvi Waldman from the New York State uh, Jewish Gun Club on with us. Did I get the name of the group right? Um, I apologize. Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. And I got your name right. Yeah, correct? perfect. That's good. Uh, I'm happy because I think the last couple episodes I've been messing people's names up off the bat. So uh, I got it right this time. But thank you for coming on the show. Can you just tell people a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Steve Waldman. I'm the founder of the New York State Jewish Gun Club. So the club started probably around five years ago when I moved out of New York City into Rockland County. And I started getting into guns and I realized that there's not much of a community. And I know the power of what a community can do. So when I went to the range, I met some, some other people in my community. I started writing down people's names. And when we had enough people, we started arranging classes and training together. And it just grew into a, I guess, a club. Now, we're not a traditional club that we have a range of stuff like that. We're more of a, like a support group. And we have many different different um, initiatives in the club. Nice. And, uh, and one of the things you guys are doing right now is supporting a lawsuit against the state's new gun carry restrictions, specifically the restriction on carrying a gun into a place of worship. Uh, even if you obtain the permit that they require, you still can't carry in a church or a synagogue or, or any other place of worship. And, and so can you give us a little, bit, a little bit of background on how that suit is going? What's the status of that suit right now? So with that suit, we started... Um... So as soon as the CCI laws came out, there's tons of stuff that we can challenge. And we didn't even know where to start. You know, it's like a big elephant. So we realized we got to do one bite at a time. So we sat down trying to figure out what's like the most important thing for us. And we realized that one of the main reasons why people carry guns and they train and they, you know, is to be able to protect the synagogues. The average Orthodox Jew spends probably 20 hours a week in synagogue. So it's almost like a part-time job. And for us to be able to be there and not to be armed is ridiculous. So I reached out to my members. We found a plaintiff in New York City, someone that had a license to carry in the synagogue. It was a premise permit registered to the synagogue itself. He's the president of that synagogue. No, right, because that this is actually a change from the previous law. Even the, even the law that was declared unconstitutional for being too restrictive 
actually did allow people who had permits to carry in, in synagogues before. But now that that's actually this law is more restrictive than that one. Correct? Right. So he he got a letter from the NYPD telling him that since he has a premise permit and that if the premise where he's going to carry his gun is one of these restricted or prohibited places, he needs to f- either find a different place to keep it or hand in his license. So, yeah, it's and then then the, the other plaintiff is in Rockland County. Um, he has been carrying to synagogue and carrying, you know, all around for like the past 10 years. And all of a sudden now he is limited. So we, um, our lawyers filed for a TRO that got denied. Then we went to the preliminary injunction. We had our preliminary injunction hearing. I think that was two or three weeks ago. And we are still waiting for the judge to give a ruling on the preliminary injunction. So you're still you're still basically just waiting for news from the judge. Uh, now, you guys sent a letter to the judge just recently uh, urging him to act in you know one direction or the other. W- what was the motivation for that? So it's a sense of urgency. Like this, besides the ban of carrying and house of worship, the law states and religious observation. Now, as an Orthodox Jew, there's, we do things throughout the day that is considered religious observation. A simple example, my kippah, right? I wear it because this is my tradition, it's my culture, and it's part of my religious observance. So I'm home. If I have my firearm on me, am I a felon? I don't know. It could be interpreted that way. We can take, like, in this tons of things throughout the day, like if somebody stops on the side of the road, like we have certain prayers in the day that we need to say before sundown. Right. So somebody drives on the highway, he stops at a gas station or even the side of the road and he says the prayer. Right. It's religious observation. There is tons of things that we do throughout the day is because we live a religious life. So that is very, very um, concerning, having these vague laws on the book. I mean, people can say, wow, you really think a cop is going to arrest you for it? Okay. Right now, not. What happens? A different DA comes in or a different police chief and gives different directives. And the scary part is, if you look in Germany in 1930, like these type of laws were put into place and people said, nah, it's for safety. Like, don't worry, they're never going to use it. And at the end of the day, the different political parties, when they were fighting it out for control, they used these laws to oppress the other party to gain power over them. And then ended up being in a situation that Jews and other people in the population were oppressed and marched into the gas chambers. And it was too late to do something. So these are the type of laws that we have to take a hard stand and fight it. It's it's not only the Second Amendment, it's even a bigger First Amendment violation. Because if I wouldn't be religious, this wouldn't matter to me as much. Right. Uh, now, obviously, I, I presumably you don't view... Uh, New York State as uh, the officials there is similar to uh, the Nazis, but you're concerned about the the power that this law it's these gives. Is that is that an accurate? Correct. It's 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 a gross violation of the Fourteenth Amendment. This law is vague. Like even even hmm. at the preliminary injunction hearing, um, the the state couldn't define what this law is. 
themselves. You know, and it's and it's obviously vague and it's scary to have these vague laws mm. because we cannot be in a situation where it could potentially be used against people. Right, because of that historical, uh, it's because of that history that of, it's, of it's, disarmament, uh, you know, in previous generations. Correct. It, it's also a trend throughout the world, and not only in Germany. Other countries have similar trends. Mm -hmm. You know, right. Uh, but so this letter that you sent also mentioned, um, you know, a specific uh, threat that was uh, the FBI had been warning about at the at the time, as as you know. Uh, example of the kinds of uh, unique challenges that uh, the Jewish population faces, right? Correct. Yeah. So basically what happened was there's a different case, I think, in the Western District with a very similar similar um, case for mm -hmm. a pastor and a reverend. Um, I think it's the Western District. I think it's the Hardaway case. Yes. I'm not sure exact. Yeah. Right. Um, so the, they they got their, their preliminary injunction granted. And at the same time, I think the same day, the FBI in Newark, their Newark office gave out um, like a bulletin to a specific threat to synagogues. Now, I live in Muncie, New York. I think it was two or three years ago on Hanukkah, there was, there was a, stat, a machete attack um, in a rabbi's house while they were celebrating the Hanukkah. And that individual came from Newark from New Jersey crossed over into Muncie and our local police department they gave out a bulletin on, on Twitter and Facebook as well that we should all heighten our security posture. So that like put us even further in a bind. And you know my phone kept on ringing said sweet like what what should we do? Can we carry? Shouldn't we? So our lawyers decided to do what they have to do. I mean they represent us and they couldn't give us an answer. And what what we should do? So we just they just sent a letter to the judge demanding him, whatever, asking him to give an answer. Right, but he hasn't actually acted since you guys sent that. Letter. Not yet. It's very frustrating. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, because didn't the NYPD issued a warning to 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 the entire? Um, Jewish population in New York about these security threats and how they need to, you know, be uh, reticent about the threats and be able to potentially defend themselves. But at the same time, uh, it's a crime to carry, even if you're licensed, even if you've gone through the process of, of showing that you're a law-abiding citizen, uh, it's, a, it's still a crime to carry in a place of worship, um, which is obviously I specific target for uh, anti-Semitic violence, correct? Like yeah. I mean, that's not, uh, you know, obviously I'm not Jewish, but I, I read the news and it's, 100%. it's pretty clear where these threats are directed. And not only that, this, this law also, if you are an individual and you're even an armed guard, meaning you had, you got the New York state license and the training and the certificate to be an armed guard, you are not allowed to be hired by the synagogue independently. So wow. they have to do it through a company. Now, if you do it through a company, the costs go up for the synagogue, right? So a lot of people in my community, they, the, the synagogue wanted a structured system. They didn't want just people 
to to randomly carry. They wanted to have some type of training. So they said, okay, if you want to train, let's get five, six people. We'll put you through the armed guard pro have a program and you'll get licenses. And then the synagogue will 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 hire you independently for like very, very cheap. Some even volunteer, but there's some type of structure and this and they can get assurance. They they were able to get assurance through the through their policy from the house of worship, from the building. And it worked out. But under this new law, they can't even hire independent security contractors, meaning independently. You can hire a company, but it can cost $1,500 just for, for the Shabbat, just for the weekend services. And not all synagogues are able to, 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 to afford because um, on the Sabbath, we're not allowed to drive or use any um electronics so we have like like these little synagogues all around the, the neighborhood with like 20 30 people that are with walking distances of people's houses and these synagogues usually run on this on a shoestring budget so it's it's not e even the so they didn't even have the ability to to hire like a full-fledged security company you know to send them people um in terms of of a threat to the community, yes, I mean anti-Semitism is 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 on the rise. On top of them, like crime is on the rise, mm -hmm. and you know all the noise from from social media, from the celebrities that are busy bashing, it doesn't help. It just convolutes and confuses the situation. Um, you know, and also like the cancel culture, like the minute somebody comes out and says something against everybody, you know, everybody gets all wild up and they get canceled. It doesn't help the, situ the, the situation either. It just makes more noise. It just, you know, motivates more people to do stuff on both sides. Um, it's not good. So, yeah. And on top of that, we're in a situation where the Supreme Court gave a very clear ruling and... Like New York State, out of spite, decided to go against it. Hmm. And you you mentioned this earlier, and it's a big part of the the letter that you sent the the judge. But can you talk a little more about this intersection of the First Amendment and Second Amendment in this case? Why do you view the the First Amendment as being implicated here? Can you just explain a little bit more of that that rationale. It's if you want to ban. The house of worship, okay, but religious observation, what is that all about? You know, like, like when, when I was talking to the lawyers, I was like, nah, it must be a mistake. Like, you know, they weren't thinking and they were telling me, look, this law was put out within 12 hours of the Bruin decision, meaning they had this law ready to go. Obviously, it was worked on for a while. If they wouldn't have a specific reason for it, it wouldn't be there. Understand? And when I spoke to legislators who who were there who voted against it, and they asked me like, "How could such a thing pass? Like this is, you know, it's so blatantly unconstitutional, so many levels." And they were like, "Look, this is what happens when you have a supermajority, and every single part of the process is controlled by them. So they, so they have the ability to shove." these type of laws down your throat. And again, they use emergency orders. I mean, some type of emergency, like whatever, to bypass the regular three-day wait, um, the three-day waiting period so people can examine the law and make sure it makes sense and it's sensible, you know? Um, yeah, so again, 
the First Amendment portion of this, it is disturbing because, like a simple thing, like 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 a shiva house, right? When when somebody passes away, for um for six days you sit in your house and people come to visit and talk. It's a religious thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Is that we're doing it because we are religious observant? Is that religious observation? So no one in the house now can have firearms. I can think of so many different things. I mean, I like we have six hundred thirteen um, mitzvahs right from from the Bible. Some of them is what we have to do, and some things that we don't have to do. And throughout the entire day, almost every couple of minutes, we do something either a certain way or we don't do something because we can't do it. So we live a religious life, hmm. you know? So do you, do you view the law then as making you choose between your first amendment right to practice these religious observances and your second amendment right to keep and bear arms? Correct. Uh, I, I know a lot of people called me up with genuine concerns about this. Can I carry here? Can I carry there? Like all different situations. Like I have an office building and when I'm the owner, um, but I, so I put up a sign, so I'm allowed to, right? But then we have a minyan of mincha. Like we have this every day at 12 o'clock at noon, we, you know, people from the office building come together and we pray. What do I do then? Do I take it off? Do I leave it at my desk? Like, you know, and like all these all these like weird situations that people find themselves in, it's concerning to people. And and some people tell me like ever since then, like I don't carry my gun because I don't know, you know, I'm scared, I'm nervous. And I have a feeling part of the, I guess, a shtick that the state did is to, to create a confusing environment. So people would rather leave their guns home than have it on them. Hmm. And for, again, for a community that is being targeted, and there's specific threats against them, it's very disturbing. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't imagine, especially with the atmosphere, as you mentioned right now, with a lot of celebrities making anti-Semitic remarks or, <clears throat> or pushing anti-Semitic viewpoints. Um, I imagine the tension, um, the threat level is, is higher now than, than it has been in previous years. And, um, but I, I wanna talk briefly here about some of the other cases, right? You, there are three cases against this provision of this law that are active right now in, in New York in the federal system. You mentioned the, the case in the Western District, your case is in the, the Southern District. There's also a, a case in the Northern District uh, that's more uh, broadly going after the entire law that uh, just actually had their own preliminary injunction issued that blocked most of the provisions, but it also did block the, the places of worship restrictions um or at least it <clears throat> it blocked them saying that you can't uh you can't impose that without exceptions allowing certain people to carry guns if they're if the place of worship uh approves of them um <clears throat> and so uh, i guess one of the, one of the big questions i think people will have is you've, you've got two cases now uh outside of your case in the same state in all about the same law that have found this provision to be unconstitutional why is it still in force in in new york city where you and 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 nearby where you guys are so at the preliminary injunction hearing um the state basically stated they did that they do not look at the ruling 
from the Northern District, the Antia case or the other case as applicable to the Southern District. They came up with some cockamamie reason. The judges were like scratching their head like, like this. It's never heard of such a thing, but this is what they claim. Yeah, so the state still claims they can enforce this law, even though it's been enjoined in two other Correct. federal courts. Again, it was enjoined at times. I think now the yeah, Second Circuit, and that's also confusing. We're still trying to figure out what it means. Yeah, the Second Circuit just issued a stay um, on the Northern District ruling. So that's now uh, now the those all the provisions from the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, as it's, as they called it in New York, are going to be in effect. Except I I think the Western District uh, ruling is is still uh, that the the block on enforcing the places of worship restriction in the Western District of New York is still in place. I don't believe that's been stated yet. Um, so we'll we'll have to it does definitely create a very confusing situation. I think if you're a New Yorker looking at all these suits and you're getting rulings against these provisions, but they only are in place in certain areas of the state and only in, in the case of the, the Northern District lawsuit only for a couple of days was right. it blocked. And now it's back in in force. And in the Southern District, it was it's never been blocked. The judges sort of perhaps dragging his feet a bit uh, on your case. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how to, is that a pretty accurate description of what's going on there? I mean, see, I think for people in New York and the rest of the country, it's it's fairly confusing. Yep. I think they, I think the state achieved what they wanted to achieve, create confusion. So people will rather leave their guns at home than, than carry it. This is the reason for all this theater. Is, is to create this type of environment. And even with, let's say, even when they rolled out the initial, the uh, initial CCIA, um, they said, okay, there's going to be a new process with a new application. They did not give any guidance to any of the counties in like what application is going to be, um, like any detailed plan of SOPs, nothing. So a lot of the counties just didn't know what to do and just stopped issuing permits till you know, till they get clarification and their legal departments were just busy scratching their head trying to figure out what to do. So I, 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 I believe that um, from, you know, speaking to people in different levels of government and seeing how this went down, I think, I think one, one way we can stop such a, such a, such a laws in the future is to create some type of law or something where if government is going to implement a law, obviously this is the 14th Amendment, it can be vague, but it, need, it needs to be sensible. And if you do pass laws that are not sensible and you don't wait the proper three-day periods, there should be, you know, the people responsible for it should be personally reliable for these type of things. Um, it just creates chaos and no one knows what to do. And everybody's in limbo trying to f trying to figure out. And meanwhile, people that genuinely want to carry for genuine reasons, you know, they can't. And again, people, ha um, I think also like people have to understand, um, Second Amendment is not a second class right. It's just as important as the first and every every other thing. I mean, when it comes to to large First Amendment cases, everybody wakes up. Everybody is 
you know, everybody lights up about it. You know, there's all these First Amendment organizations that are busy fighting these cases day and night. And I think the Second Amendment is, is it's going to be that way. It, it'll just take time for for you know for the states and um, the anti-gun to realize that the Second Amendment is just like the First Amendment. So, where do you guys go from here? What's what's your strategy moving forward? Um, you know, if you don't get a favorable ruling from this this judge uh, at the district level, which I Honestly, seems like you're not going to. He denied your TRO, and now he's he's sort of slow walking the preliminary injunction phase of this. But um, if he rules against you, what what's your next step? Appeal it. Take you know, take it to the next level. I mean, and how far how far are you willing to go with it? All the way, as far as we need to. Hmm. You know, all the way up to the Supreme Court. If if that's what it takes, yeah. That makes sense. Um, and and so you know, I just want to talk a little bit as well about about your group. Um, you know, we've had a number of uh, of groups on the podcast in the past that represent uh, you know different minority groups in the United States uh, who are gun owners. We've had you know the African National African American Gun Association, the uh, Asian American Pacific Island Pacific Islander Gun Owners, um, and and all sorts of different. Viewpoints, it seems like gun ownership in America has become more diversified over the past couple of decades and especially over the past couple of years. Is that something that you've noticed as well with with uh, your group? Definitely. It is an upwards trend, trend for many reasons. Um, um, the pandemic, you know, yeah. there was a spike all over the country and obviously in the Jewish community as well. And then um, the violence, the anti-Semitism. Um, at least my personal journey, like to gun ownership, um, obviously I always had an interest in in in, in self-defense. Um, but when the, I think it was the Pittsburgh shooting happened, hmm. um, that was a big wake-up call, and that's when I started organizing training. And I started getting involved with some Second Amendment organizations to try to do litigation and helping them out. And then we had a Muncie attack that, you know, within my town. Um, that was another huge wake-up call. And I think a week later, we had a terrible shootout. What happened in, I think it's Jersey City with a kosher supermarket. Yeah. Um, and that was horrific. And then we had a Poway shooting in California. And then just a string of others, you know, and then again, at the same time, we also had shootings in churches, you know, um, mm -hmm. Texas, there's you no know, tons of them. So it is an upward trend, but the Jewish community is more reserved when it comes to gun ownership. Um, they're very afraid of, of how it will be perceived. They don't want to come across as like aggressive people like have like a, an aggressive posture. It's more like a passive. We'll, we'll carry, we'll do what we have to do to protect ourselves. Um, it's not like in your face, you know. Um, our families are larger families. Like the, I think the average of Orthodox um, household, I think is like six, is, is six, is I think six children, something like that. So we have, so a lot of people are concerned with guns and children around the house. Sure. Um, 
like a lot of people don't even want their kids to know about it because they don't want them to go to school and because they don't know how other people feel about it. There's a different aspect in the community why guns is a little bit quieter is because the fact is that um, a lot of our grandparents went through the Holocaust and the gun was the thing that, you know, chased them into the the cattle carts and into the gas chambers. Mm. So we never wanted to bring up guns around our grandparents. Like I remember having this conversation with my grandmother and like I asked her straight up, like, why don't we have guns now to protect ourselves? And I saw it in her face. Like I, I couldn't ask that question anymore. I saw the reaction it evoked. So we are sensitive to it and we understand that um, there's a certain trauma that they went through that the guns caused it. So so but how do you uh, change that perception of guns in, in the Jewish community? Like how, how have you gone about, um, you know, alleviating, alleviating that, that's those sort of concerns that you're, you're discussing there? So I think I think people um, understanding the the founding of America and the founding of the Constitution and the reasons for it, and seeing a trend how governments that do not have these type of checks um, and built in the system and this inherent right, um, how it could lead to oppression, hmm. and I think we're like what the second third generation Americans that people start understanding and people start seeing it and there's a big shift um, in mindset. But again, when we do it, we have to respect it and we have to understand it. So we're less in your face. We're very discreet about it. Um, Like I know so many people that like when I meet them in public, like I I don't even blink. They they don't want to even acknowledge that they know me. Because they don't want people to to know that they know me. Oh, so probably, you know. So I have to understand that and I have to respect that, you know. But yeah, it's it's a lot more people carry, a lot more people have um, guns in the community than people think. Because, again, there's, there's another aspect as well. We live in New York, uh, in New York State and... Mm-hmm. We don't know what what our neighbors think about it, and we don't want to offend people. You know, we we just want to get along. So a lot of people just don't want to talk about it to their coworkers and and the work. You know, so people are quiet about it. And I guess the downside of it is that if people are not vocal about it, then the public opinion, the public perception, might look differently than what in reality it is. So when it comes to to these type of challenges, with when you do lawsuits and you need you know need people to speak about it, you need that 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 momentum. It's not always easy to get within this community because a lot of people are very very quiet and they don't want to be vocal about it. And uh, as far as uh, the the gun owning community goes, uh, especially you know working with other gun rights groups or things like that, how how have you found uh, that relationship to be is have people been in, um, embracing you guys or are you uh, not as well connected as you'd like to be like what how's the experience been with when interacting with with gun owners from other backgrounds or from other organizations um, in particular so there's certain organizations that has been great and certain lawsuits that are out there um, I was involved behind the scenes because I was very vocal about it in the beginning, I got a lot of 
emails from potential plaintiffs. And once we decided which district we're going to sue, I was able to help other organizations with our, with our plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of good organizations out there. I got support from others and I'm still working connections, um, you know, whatever meeting. And I'm, my emails are blowing up every day with different people that could connect me and want to connect me. And I just need more hours in the day. <laughs> but it's been a positive experience so far as, uh, as far as the, uh, the way that other gun rights groups have, so, yes, very surprisingly, coming. I was very reserved. Like till three years ago, I did not utter a word about the gun club to the media and public. I had mm. people um, reach out to me, people that saw it on, on Instagram, you know, media. I didn't give any interviews. When I did give interviews, I did not mention the gun club. Um, I didn't mention anything about it. But when it came after the Bruin um, decision and the reaction, and I was so upset about it. And I realized I had no choice. I had to go public about it. Mm. And once I went public, when I saw the reaction, how it's embraced, it just motivated me to continue the work. And so what's your what's your overall vision for the for the gun club moving forward? How to like both on the legal side and on the cultural side? What, what are your goals? So I want to continue the advocacy work. Um, create educational programs to educate people about the second amendment, um, organize training, um, within the community and other communities as well. And just, um, be a force of positive. I mean, it's, you know, I'm getting people reaching out to me from other communities. Like I would never think of like the amount of emails I got from people in Manhattan that are concerned. And you would think of Manhattan as like, you know, the epicenter of liberalism, you'll be surprised how many people feel differently. Mm. So I, I realize there's a need and people are responding positively to it. So it's just motivating me to keep on moving forward. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, and uh, so if people want to learn more about the club or help you with this lawsuit, um, what are the best ways to get in contact with you or, or read about what you're doing or, or so forth? So the website is nysjewishgunclub.com. And if people want to donate, um, nysjewishgunclub.com slash donate. Or there's a red um, donation button on top right side of the website where they can help out. And we have a 501c3 that we created and we attached to it, United Jewish Gun Coalition. Um, it's it's tax deductible, so people can, can donate over there. Wonderful. Well... Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing uh, your perspective and, and giving us an update on what's going on with that lawsuit. Uh, and we'll hope to have you back on again in the future and, and absolutely keep our readers informed about how, how your lawsuit is progressing. Thanks for having me. All right. It's time for the news update with contributing writer Jake Fogelman. Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. It's uh, officially wintertime here in Colorado. The temperatures are in the single digits this morning, so... Staying warm. Nice. Yeah, it finally got cold out here in Virginia, too, Yeah, um, which I prefer. I like to have actual seasons in my year. I used to get more of those up in Pennsylvania than you do down here in Virginia, but uh, at least November is actually cold now. It was pretty freaking warm uh, the early part of the month here, but uh, maybe we'll get some snow soon. Have you guys started getting snow? Yeah, actually, just last night we got about – I'm here in Denver, and we got about three inches overnight, so – 
Nice. I think it's the first big snowstorm of the season. So Great. winter Great. is here. You'll have to hit up the slopes at some point. Yeah. Do, you, do you ski or snowboard? Or? Not, not really. For a Colorado kid, I'm actually wow. uh, not a big skier or snowboarder. I played ice hockey growing up. So most of my time yeah. was, was on the rinks instead of the slopes. Nice. Uh, yeah, I like to snowboard. So hopefully I'll get to go this. I haven't been probably in two years, but but uh, I've got to get some new boots too. But either way, um, I do like the cold. Uh, but this week we are talking about a new ruling out of the Third Circuit. This is actually the first significant uh, appeals court ruling on a gun law after the Bruin decision from the Supreme Court. Uh, I think it's the first decision from an appeals court on on gun policy at all. Uh, I, don't, I can't recall anyone else making other than you know some remands right. uh, of of other cases back down to lower courts. I don't think there's been a decision on the merits yet uh, using this, the Bruin standard. But now we have one from the Third Circuit, which upheld the ban on the lifetime ban on nonviolent felons uh, owning firearms, uh, really all felons. But the case was specifically about non, uh, a nonviolent felon. He's a uh, man who like, basically defrauded. Uh, the government for t- about right. $2,500 for food stamps in 1995 and has been banned from owning guns ever since. He challenged that ban under um, the, the Bruin decision, under Second Amendment protections. He, he claimed that it violates the Second Amendment. And the Third Circuit ruled that it does not, or at least a panel of the Third Circuit uh, ruled that the law is constitutional. They did a historical analysis and uh, can you tell us just a little bit about what they, what their reasoning was? Sure. Yeah. So, like you said, first, we've seen this a uh, couple district court cases so far on this very question. Uh, but first, appeals court decision to actually analyze the rationale behind the uh, lifetime felon <clears throat> felon ban. Um, and so, their rationale was essentially they relied a lot on a lot of the Supreme Court dicta in both Heller and Bruin, where the justices just over and over said the Second Amendment protects law-abiding, responsible citizens, something to that nature, just multiple times throughout the decision. So essentially their rationale was a person who commits a felony, or in this case, a felony equivalent offense, because that actually that welfare fraud uh, offense in Pennsylvania was classified as a misdemeanor under their law, right. but it was punishable by five years in prison. And under the Federal Gun Control Act, they define a felon felony as anything punishable by more than a year in prison. So even though it was a misdemeanor for which he never served any jail time, he's classified as a felon as far as the federal law is concerned. So, yeah. And and so he um, he challenged this and they basically led their entire opinion with not the required historical text right. of whether this whether the the law from uh, 1968, I mean, the prohibited persons stuff dates back to the 1930s, the, uh, um, you know, the, the gun control, uh, federal gun control from the ni- bill from the 1930s. But but that portion dates to the 1960s. So it's obviously a modern law there. Sure. And um, there's Bruin requires looking at whether or not there's a substantially similar historical counterpart to that law from the founding era. And instead of diving into that right away, as you mentioned, they <clears throat> they just quoted back the Supreme Court's uh, words to, to the effect that 
Second Amendment protections only extend to the law abiding. Of course, the Supreme Court never got into what that actually means, but um, but yeah, the, the Third Circuit has taken it to mean. Um, well, it, interestingly, they there's a, they have a footnote that says you know it's, it doesn't apply to to lesser crimes, but felonies, all felonies, they um, they they think that are, makes you not law abiding, and so. Uh, but it's interesting that they led with that, but but they went further from there, right? Right, yeah. So basically they said if you're not law-abiding, you're not classified as the people that the Second Amendment refers to, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Uh, so you can be construed as not a part of the people that the Second Amendment ostensibly protects. So therefore, you know, as a felon, the Second Amendment does not protect your right to continue owning guns. But as you said, they didn't do an extensive historical analysis as the Bruin test would require, but they did kind of lay out the history of various legislatures in the colonial era and even back in England prohibiting people from owning guns for various reasons. Usually, I think the the word they used was upsetting social cohesion or the social compact. And it was what we've seen in a couple other court cases where they laid out essentially just historical bigoted bans on yeah. classes of people. So, for example, Catholics in England uh, or blacks and Native Americans in the colonial era here in America. Uh, so sign up kind of some ugly history to make the justification that looks state governments had discretion in the past to take arms away from people. Uh, so that's our historical examples. Right. Well, so they they led with this appeal to the dicta. Dicta is basically uh, any part of a Supreme Court ruling that isn't part of the, the merits of yeah. the case. Right? Isn't isn't uh, part of the actual decision but is included in the ruling. Um, you know, they, they led with that stuff. And then they went into their version of a historical analysis, which led with these explicitly bigoted uh, historical gun laws, things like total bans on Native Americans uh, owning guns or uh, Catholics. And the Catholics one doesn't even extend to actual American history. That's from, uh, you know, 17th, 16th and 17th century um, England, uh, which the, those laws didn't actually make it into uh, the American tradition, but they, 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 you know, they claim that that was um, the Supreme Court allows you to look at some of these laws further back as uh, a way of informing what was in place during the founding era. And yeah, it's pretty, honestly, it's pretty gross to me that this is that was their main thrust for justifying uh, the felon in possession bans. I mean, if that's what the entire law is relying on, boy, I, I mean, I would hope not. Right. You know, I would hope that they could find some other reasons. And some other courts have. They've, this idea that certain groups of people are outside, certain groups of individuals are outside of the protections of the people is not a a new concept. Um, yeah, this ruling really kind of felt a bit scattershot. They just kind of threw everything at the wall. Um, and, and we're hoping it's because later on they get into, um, bans on, uh, gun ownership for loyalists who hadn't, uh, declared an oath of loyalty to the United States during, you know, the, the early founding era. And so those were actually at least American gun laws, but, uh, of course, you could remedy those by just taking an oath of loyalty. So it's a little different than the lifetime ban discussed here. But 
um, you know, they, they threw that in, they threw in, um, you know, uh, this argument that, well, felons in the founding era, a common punishment was uh, the death penalty for all felonies. Of course, felonies were very different at the time. Some of them were the same, you know, your, your high level violent crimes, murder and, and, uh, you know, uh, rape and, and so forth were, were high level, were felonies then, but they're way more felonies now right. in, in our modern time, you know, including this stealing $2,500 from, or committing like $2,500 of, of food stamp fraud is a felony now. Um, but they, you know, they, they, they argued that because, uh, death penalty was common punishment for felonies during the founding era that, well, of course, that implies that disarming the person would be an acceptable, uh, in the acceptable range of punishments as well. And so they kind of took this throw everything at the wall approach to the ruling, but it's really pretty gross that they led with the racist stuff, the explicitly racist right. stuff. Because so essentially their, their argument is, as you noted, you know, the, the founding era, they believed that certain people, certain groups of individuals were outside the protections of the people if they were perceived to be dangerous to society. And, but of course they're citing laws that, where the reason these people were deemed to be dangerous to society is because they were the wrong race or the wrong religion. Right. And so having that as your foundational historical analog for disarming people today is, is, is terrible. I say it's more honestly. than a little gross. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and I don't, I don't think it makes any sense either when you read, uh, at least as far as appealing to the Supreme court, because the Supreme court has done the exact opposite with historical gun, gun laws that are based in racism. They use them as examples of how um, the the right was viewed to be very expansive, the right to to keep and bear arms, and that these laws were proof that uh, the that those rights were being denied to certain groups of people. Not it didn't it didn't use those laws as a basis for what you could. Um, what restrictions you could put in place today right. uh, in, in the sense that they're saying, well, uh, you know, blacks were viewed as, as dangerous by slave owners because they didn't like being enslaved. So uh, you can disarm any group that society uh, views as dangerous, whether or not they've committed any crimes at all. I mean, that's the other thing about it is like they're using this to justify, well, People who've committed crimes, even nonviolent crimes, um, can be d disarmed for life. Uh, although they do hand wave at, uh, there, there's, there's supposed to be procedures for you to be able to regain your gun rights over time. But in practice, uh, effectively, those are never used. Yeah, I say it's very rare. Um, but and they also uh, make a, a, a weird carve out in this rationale explicitly for the second amendment because there's a portion of the decision this is interesting there's a portion of the decision where they address the fact that well if you're a felon you don't suddenly lose your first amendment rights for life you can still speak freely you don't you're not 
you know, allowed to, the government's not allowed to unreasonably search and seize your property just because you're a felon. But they explicitly said, well, our analysis is just for the Second Amendment, and it is not meant to construe an implication for any other right. And that that's that. They just put that in a footnote, yeah. which is interesting. I think it's, yeah, I think that's especially interesting when it comes to Supreme Court review, because it, you know, the whole, the whole thing about Bruin uh, and, and what Justice um, Thomas has railed about repeatedly over the, the last dozen years since Heller is that the Second Amendment is being treated as a second class right by a lot of lower courts. And so here you have this ruling where they're just explicitly saying it provides less protections than other uh, other amendments of the Constitution. And so, you know, that does seem like something that's almost a you spit in the eye kind of thing. Right. For But uh, I mean, you know, they're, they're like, um, there, there is there's certain there's some nuance there, I think, in, uh, you know, how felonies affect your rights uh, long term, you know, like the right to vote, for instance. We saw this in um, a, another federal case, the, the one of the cases out of Texas, where they explained, um, you know, f they use the same framework of uh, people who are convicted felons being outside of the protections of the people, um, but had a frankly much better justification at least for it, which is that uh, historically, even though there aren't gun laws uh, that were in place disarming convicted felons uh, in the founding era, they did have laws that uh, restricted their other rights, like the right to vote. Right. Um, so, there's certainly a little bit of of nuance, but I do think that putting in explicitly that the Second Amendment just ha is less uh, impactful right than the other rights in the Constitution um, it, it is not it wouldn't go over well at the Supreme Court. However, there's a, there's a different reason to think this the Supreme Court probably won't intervene here, uh, which is something that I wrote about for a member's piece this week. And frankly, it's the, we, we just talked about how it is weird, right? That they would lead with an appeal to Supreme Court dicta, stuff that doesn't have binding effect on the rulings in Heller and McDonald and, and Bruin, when they're supposed to do the historical analysis, that's supposed to be what the merits of this ruling are based on. But instead, they lead with this appeal to, you know, uh, how the Supreme Court has framed the Second Amendment in in previous rulings, and I think they did that because it indicates to me, uh, you know, what the Supreme Court has said previously, that they're just not that eager to get involved in litigating um, felon in possession laws, at least not at an early stage. I think there's so much more they can get into where they're going to find five or six justices willing to, uh, or who have the same view of particular gun restrictions than when it comes to these felon in possession laws, even for nonviolent felons. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, the, the third circuit is certainly correct that the Supreme court has repeatedly talked about how this only applies to law abiding citizens or law-abiding you know people and and that's 
while they're <laughs> while the Supreme Court ought to apply their own Bruin tests faithfully and not get into not be affected by sort of uh, other concerns at play, like the effect of the ruling on um, enforcement of gun laws in the country and so forth, that in practice, that's not how it always works, right? Like, I think it's, you, you might be able to, whether you can come up with a historical justification that makes sense for these felon in possession laws, especially as they apply to nonviolent felons, uh, is I think an open question that's going to be debated for a while now. But um, I just don't see the Supreme Court actually jumping on this case. I don't think this is going to be the one that they take next. I think they're far more likely to take, I don't know, an assault and span case or magazine limits or permit to purchase laws. Or There's so many other things. The Second Amendment litigation is really at its infancy uh, to this point, and I just don't know that they're going to be jumping at the opportunity to take this case, at least not until a circuit split develops. Um, and I think they'll be more active generally overall with on gun cases, but this one in particular is probably not going to be where they go next. What I do think you think? That, I think that's exactly right. I think to your point, the previous gun decisions where they repeatedly state that nothing in this decision is meant to construe upsetting longstanding rights to keep dangerous people from owning guns. And the second amendment only applies to law abiding citizens. I think that's their way of signaling, Hey, we're not looking to upset, uh, yeah. things like these very bans, like felon in possession bans. And so I just don't see the appetite being there to immediate, then immediately take a case where that's at least in the air, that's a possibility where the longstanding felon bans are, are at least potentially being upset. I just don't see that happening. Yeah. Same for like, the NFA, the National Firearms Act, right, and machine right. gun regulations. Yeah. Like, you know, they'll probably be hard pressed to find historical analogs for those laws uh, if you do a Bruin analysis. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Supreme Court is going to jump at the opportunity to actually uh, go through with any of that stuff, uh, to be honest. Uh, as much as it might piss off gun rights advocates, uh, I just think there's a, there is a practical aspect to all of this. And yeah. There is a, you know, you look at the bump stock case that's been denied twice now right? Uh, for Supreme Court review after Bruin. And um, even uh, even though you could approach that case from two different angles, right? The EPA ruling would seem to have implications for the bump stock ban, given how it was created through the rulemaking process, uh, using very broad um, authority from uh, a government agency, the ATF or DOJ. Um you know, they could easily take that case and, but they aren't necessarily going to do that. Right. Uh, and the, the, this is the thing about the Supreme court, they get to be very selective in what they actually address. And just because a case seems like, um, it wouldn't withstand scrutiny that the Supreme court has laid out as required, um, doesn't mean that the Supreme court's actually going to jump in and intervene. Yeah. And I just think that the practical reality here is, uh, in this situation, that's, uh, they're just unlikely to do it. Um, but you know, we'll keep watching. Perhaps we'll be wrong. You never know. Uh, it's true. The, the, I mean, I think this new court is different. You do have someone on the court now who has directly addressed this issue. Justice, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, who by the way, did 
use that same sort of uh, a version of this uh, bigoted gun law argument in her Cantor dissent, although she came to the opposite conclusion that the Third Circuit did, which is that nonviolent felons shouldn't be disarmed for life. And uh, she's the only one, though, of the nine that have written anything about nonviolent felons or felon in possession laws. So uh, whether or not the rest of the court is as interested in taking on that that issue remains to be seen. It could be. We, you know, we don't know. It's still early days of this this new court, really. I mean, it's only been a couple of years since the key players have been added uh, to the lineup there. So we'll we'll have to wait and see. And we will, of course, be covering it all over at reload.com where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter that goes out every Friday morning or buy a membership, become a member. You get this podcast day early. You get the opportunity to appear on the podcast. We have a member scheduled real soon here to be on the show. So I'm looking forward to that. And um, yeah, you'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis that you won't find anywhere else. And uh, you'll also be supporting the reporting that we do supporting the reporting that we do. Um, and yeah, if you want to support us, uh, but you don't have the, the means or ability or desire to buy a membership right now, you can also go ahead and like, uh, this this episode on YouTube. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can uh, give us a rating on your favorite podcasting app that you're listening to this on. Uh, write up a review. All those things help boost our reach. And so we encourage you to do it. That is all for this week. Uh, we will try to put together an episode for next week. Uh, you know, obviously it's Thanksgiving. So uh, whether we can get a guest in time will be interesting to see. But um, if not, we'll be back again the week after that. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's all we've got for you. Stay tuned.